Good morning and welcome to those in the fellowship hall and joining us online today. It's good to be able to study the Word of God all together. If you would like to use a Bible this morning as we're going through our last couple chapters of Acts, our ushers will be walking up and down the aisles with those Bibles. Please just raise your hand and let them know that you'd like to use one today during the service. Today is the last day of our Mission Possible series, learning how the Holy Spirit empowered people in the book of Acts in the impossible mission of moving the good news of Jesus' love from a circle of 12 to reaching the entire world. And that mission that we've seen take incredible strides forward in the book of Acts is still unfolding today through you and through me. And if you're not the kind of person who reads the last page of the mystery novel first, you might think it's kind of strange, but I'm actually going to start at the end of the story and work my way backwards today. Because as Christians, that's actually how we live our lives of faith. Because in Jesus Christ, we already know the end of the story. We know that God wins in the end. We know that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. We know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know all of that. What we don't know is our part of the in-between. That part we have to live out ourselves right alongside Jesus in our daily lives. So in our last part of Acts, I'm going to tell this story in the same way, starting with the end, because we've already known for the last third of the book of Acts that Jesus told Paul in a vision that one day he would present the gospel in Rome. So if I were Luke and I were writing this account of Acts just out of pure storytelling symmetry, I would think that Paul proclaiming the gospel before Caesar in Rome would be the logical conclusion of this book, right? That's not what we get. This is what we get instead. At the end of chapter 28 in Acts, starting on page 1642 of your Quest Bible and verse 14, Luke marks the moment they finally arrive on Roman soil. He says, There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. Finally made it. That Paul had written his letter to the Roman church and that he had hoped to come and meet with them personally. And these Roman Christians had actually traveled quite a long way to come and to meet them. And now here he was, and here they were, and they were all so encouraged, and there was much rejoicing. But since Paul was still technically a prisoner of Rome, he was set up under a very loose kind of house arrest since there were still no official charges against him. In that house, he had all kinds of freedom to do whatever he wanted to do. So knowing all the trouble that he had had with the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, Paul wastes no time, and he immediately invites the Jewish leaders of Rome to come and meet with him there at the house so he can tell them his side of the story, which he does in chapter 28, starting at verse 17. He says, I've done nothing wrong against our Jewish customs. I was arrested, I was found innocent, but because the Jewish leaders there objected, I appealed to Caesar. And that's why I'm here in Rome to stand trial. But I wanted you to know I didn't intend to bring any charges against our people, and that's why I wanted to talk with you right away and just clear that up. And their response to Paul was, so who are you again? They had heard nothing about any of this. They didn't know Paul from Adam, which must have come as a great relief to him. Uh, But now, of course, they're curious to find out why he's here. 
So Paul does get a chance to preach the gospel in Rome in the book of Acts, but to one small group at a time, starting with the Jewish leaders, and then also opens his doors to the Gentiles who Paul was proclaiming Jesus also came to invite into the family. And some of them are convinced to become followers of Jesus, and some are not. And Paul boldly preaches the gospel in Rome for two years while under house arrest. The end. Really? Seriously, the very first time I read the book of Acts, I literally turned the page looking for the rest of the story. Because <laughs> what about Caesar? Because you know, you may know, as I did, that Paul actually was martyred in Rome. When I was in Italy for my sabbatical in 2016, I was at the, the Vatican the day before they were preparing for the celebration of, of the martyrdom of Peter and Paul, which both occurred in Rome. It's still a very big commemoration they hold every year. So obviously, eventually, there is more to this story. Eventually, Paul did stand before Caesar. So why isn't that the end of Acts? Why leave this story incomplete? Well, obviously, what we have here is what Luke knew. And some historical references say that Paul was actually, actually released from his two years of house arrest, and then he went on to preach in Spain first, before he was arrested and returned to Rome to be martyred. And I'm guessing Luke didn't go with him to Spain. Or if he did, maybe Luke was saving that story for book three. Luke, Acts, and Paul goes to Spain, or whatever he would call it. But Jesus promised Paul that he would get to Rome and preach the gospel, and he did. But this story about the impossible mission becoming possible, about teaching Jesus with boldness, leaves off with Paul's story incomplete. No neat and tidy ending here. To bring home the point for us, I think, that the next chapter of this mission is ours to complete. Because as unsettling as it is in a storytelling kind of way, not to have the end of Paul's story here, truly, we don't need it. Because we know that he lived his mission to the end. We don't need the full story of Paul's faithfulness because we have the full story of Jesus' faithfulness. And Jesus is the one who will be with us on our missional journeys. And as strange as it might seem in Acts that getting to Rome didn't actually turn out to be the highlight of the story, <laughs> that's actually nothing new in Scripture. In the Old Testament, getting to the Promised Land takes a huge backseat of the how God made that possible story, of God parting the Red Sea and leading his people from slavery into freedom. And in the same way in our chapters today, the actual getting to Rome story in chapter 28 is hugely overshadowed by the how God made that possible story in chapter 27, with God's saving work for Paul and all of those with him stormed, shipwrecked, and saved for a new beginning. And I think there's a reason for that, because honestly, isn't that true for our lives too? We all know that Jesus has already done the work to save us through his sacrificial love, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection to new life, and in his invitation for us to step into that promise by faith. We live our lives holding on to the promise that we know the ending. Just like the criminal on the cross next to Jesus asked him, Jesus, remember me 
when you come into your kingdom and he received Jesus' promise, today you will be with me in paradise. We too have that promise that there's more to life with Jesus than we can now see. And the hope of that promise makes all the difference for us right here where we are now. But it's always in the living of the messiness of our lives that we come to see that we can trust right here and now the one who is our future and our hope. So having started with the end, seeing Jesus can be trusted to be faithful to his promises, let's take a look back at what Jesus is teaching us on the journey where we live. Last week we learned how Paul had been in a holding pattern for years, and today we learn how Paul gets to Rome. And the journey to Rome in Acts 27, starting on page 1639 of your Quest Bible, is to be taken on a ship across the Mediterranean Sea. And if you don't think that sounds very threatening, you have the wrong kind of ship in mind. Several years ago, I went to see a replica of the Nina and the Pinta in Hudson, Wisconsin. I really like historical things like that. But having seen those ships, my overall takeaway of that experience was to be appalled. <laughs> the thought of crossing an ocean in one of those glorified fishing boats seemed insane, especially hearing that the people had to take the whole voyage on the deck of the ship because the part underneath was needed to store all the food and the fresh water and the supplies that they would need to survive the trip across the ocean. And having seen the very best of sailing vessels from 1440, I couldn't even imagine what ocean-going vessels of the first century looked like. In Paul's letters, we learned that he had been shipwrecked three times in his life. And initially I thought, sheesh, how unlucky can you be? What are the odds? But apparently, the odds back then were pretty good. <laughs> you can imagine why there was a lot of fear of the sea in the biblical world. It stood as a symbol of chaos, the unknown, the powers of evil, powers that were obviously greater than human strength and often quite deadly. Those who traveled on the sea were considered to be very brave. And this ship was a Roman vessel that was carrying prisoners to Rome with the soldiers to accompany them. So you can imagine this was a pretty tough crew as well. And from the get-go at the top of chapter 27, this journey wasn't going well. It was hard sailing at every leg of the journey to the point that they got behind schedule. In Acts 27 verse 9, it says, Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because it was after the Day of Atonement, so Paul warned them. They were into the storm season, and Paul told them he knew they should not sail, that it would end badly, but since he was just a prisoner whose God they didn't believe in, and what they wanted was a more comfortable port to winter in, they went anyway. But sure enough, before long, they were caught in hurricane-force winds called a northeaster. And verse 16 and 17, we see, so they wouldn't lose the lifeboat, they had to secure it on board. And they ended up passing ropes under the ship to tie it together so it didn't come apart. Now, how they did that, I haven't got a clue. But it sounds to me a lot like trying to hold things together with duct tape. Not good. And it got a lot worse from there. It was so bad that the very next day to try to make the ship lighter, they started throwing the cargo overboard. Now that was their profit. That was the purpose for making this trip in the first place. You don't make money on delivering prisoners to Caesar. And this is how bad it is. They have to decide between their lives and money. The next day, 
they throw over the ship's tackle, which means now they're deciding between life and control. And by verse 20, we learn they'd given up all hope of being saved at all. They'd been battling the storm for 14 days. Now, I have never experienced anything like this, but my dad has. So I had to call the expert and find out what this must have been like. When my dad served in the Navy, his ship, the cruiser Topeka, had been caught in a powerful three-day storm on the open ocean. And in order to not get blown off course or lose control, they had to use all of their power to intentionally steer into the storm, with the waves breaking over the deck over and over again, repeatedly submerging half the ship, rising and crashing over and over again. And at full strength of the ship's engines against the strength of the waves, all they did was barely lose ground. And on the top decks, he could hear the straining of the metal and the bolts of the ship as they repeatedly took the punishment of the wind and the waves. And the storm was so violent that the cast iron safe in the office in which he worked broke off the wall and crashed into the desks. And with quick thinking, they had to lasso ropes around it from different directions to get it secured before it destroyed anything else by its sheer weight. And through those three days, even though they had rations to eat, it was hard for the sailors to keep anything down because of the constant motion that left everyone's stomachs in the lurch. And to put it delicately, the evidence of that wasn't cleaned up quickly because other things kept taking precedence, making those days quite a bit less than pleasant for everyone on board. Now that's a cruiser built for the ocean with all modern technologies and only for three days. Imagine going on 14 with no end in sight on a ship of the first century. By now, they'd lost any illusion of control. They were completely without hope. And at that point, the Apostle Paul stands up and he addresses them all and he tells them, I told you so. <laughs> he totally does in verse 21. Not helpful, Paul. But then he moves on to something much more helpful in verse 22. He says, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. And since none of them had eaten for 14 days, Paul now encourages them to eat because they're going to need that nourishment to survive. And they were going to survive. In Acts 27, 33, he says, Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. And after he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them at all. And he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. And all together, there were 276 of us on board. To catch the us? The author, Luke, is there with them on the ship. And when they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. Now this act is the very moment of faith right here, daring to eat this meal in the middle of the storm. By choosing to take and eat, they were choosing to believe Paul that, that there was hope for them in the promise of this Jesus. 
They were choosing to believe when it seemed all hope was lost that what Paul was telling them about Jesus' promise to him and to them was true, and they're going to stake their future on that promise. But it took a lot for them to get there. Remember, when they started this journey, they set a course against all advice for the sake of profit, willfully asserting their own control in defiance of the time of year and Paul, out of a desire to find comfort for themselves in a cushier winter port. But through the course of these weeks through the storm, eventually they were forced to relinquish all of those things. They had to choose to let go of profit, dropping their cargo into the sea for them to keep afloat. And then the scripture tells us, with their own hands, they dropped the tackle. That's to tell us this was no accident. It wasn't people ignorant of how much they would need the tackle who threw it over. It was people who knew exactly what it is they were sacrificing, who knew that by dropping the tackle, they'd be letting go of their ability to take control and set their direction if they ever got free of the storm. They were letting go of control. And then finally, after breaking bread with Paul, they even let go of everything they have left, of any comfort of sustenance for tomorrow all thrown into the sea to lighten their load for what they now trusted would come tomorrow. Saving help. Well, that's faith. Because these sailors don't see God. They don't hear him. They only see the storm. But what they can see is Paul's faith. They see his hope, and it shines like a beacon of light and the darkness. And so they put all of their hope on Paul's hope because it's the only hope there is. Someone ever been a Paul for you? Have you ever leaned on someone else's faith when yours is weak? Have you ever been a Paul for someone else? This world in which we live is so full of storms. And people are constantly trying to find life and profit and control and comfort. And the storms of life take those things down so fast because they're fragile. They're temporary. But when all supports are washed away, what remains? On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We have a promise in Jesus Christ that nothing of this earth can ever shake. And that's why we and this world needs the church so badly. Because when we can't find the hope, we need each other to remind us to shine Jesus to us, to shine the beacon of faith and hope, and to constantly invite us to take and eat because this promise is for you. And to be able to hear once again the hope that God to whom we belong has made us this promise and we know the end. And notice the promise has never been that Jesus would save the ship or the prophet or our control or our safety nets. Jesus' promise was and is Put your trust in me and I will save you. Because in the end, beloved, you 
are what's important. There's no greater treasure to him than you. And in all of this temporary world, you are what's eternal. You have been created in the image of God to be his own forever. And one day the ship of this world will be destroyed. But you have, if you'll accept and trust it, this promise of a savior. And he will be there to rescue you. And he can promise that because he himself has become the way from death to eternal life because he walked that path first for you. And what a difference it makes in the middle of a storm to know the end. When morning came for Paul and his companions, a sandy beach came into view and working together, they cut the anchors and hoisted the foresail to get them as close to shore as possible. And the ship hit a sandbar and it broke apart and all those who could swim swam and those who could not clung to the wreckage and every last one of them made it safely to shore. The God of Paul had saved every single one of them through the storm. Can you see why Paul's arrival in Rome seems kind of anticlimactic after that? When we are in the storm, there's nowhere to hide. When we're in storms, all those things we try to center our lives around in good times so quickly sink and show their true colors as being worthless idols. Story reminds us it's time to let go of your grip on profit and control and comfort because they're of no help whatsoever when things get real. But today you're offered something else to hold on to. Take hold of this bread, this promise. Reach out and take it right here in this storm because you're going to be needing to be nourished for the journey ahead. And there will be a journey ahead. You can trust the one making this promise to you. Because in the worst of all nights, the night in which he was betrayed, the son of the living God, who could speak authority over the wind and the waves, who could speak life out of death, chose to set his course directly into the storm, to enter into death itself, to make a way to save us through it, together with him. Jesus chose to take bread and break it and give it to us saying, take and eat, this is my body and I give it for you. Take this nourishment with my promise that I will be the one to get you through the storm safe to the other side. Be nourished for this journey, beloved. And then he said, take this cup and drink of it. This is my blood that I give for you for your forgiveness. So you can know you have a future and a hope in my lifeblood in you. And one day when you leave all this behind, you will take your place with me at my table because I will be your righteousness. The God to whom you belong wants to meet you here today at his table. Because no matter what storm you're facing, it is his promise that will sustain you. He holds the end of your story as he did the beginning, as he does all new beginnings. And it makes all the difference when you know the ending. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have chosen to meet us right where we are in all the storms of life. 
that you meet us here with your presence, with your power, with your love. And Lord, we confess there are so many times when we try to cling to other things to be our hope. But when they fall away, Lord, we see so clearly that it's only you. It's only your love that gets us through. So Lord, help us today as we are nourished by your body and your blood, your eternal promise to us that what you did, you did for us to sustain us and to see us through. Lord, ignite the hope in our hearts again. May our lives shine that hope in a dark world like a beacon in the night until everyone comes to gather in the light of your grace. For all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.